This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. It's Jonathan Master calling. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for your willingness to do this. Not a problem. Thanks for the opportunity. We're delighted to welcome as our guest today the Associate Minister of Cambridge Presbyterian Church in Cambridge, England. He is the author of a number of historical and biblical articles in various journals and the Obadiah section in the NIV Proclamation Bible, and is the co-editor with David Gibson of From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, Definite Atonement in Historical, Biblical, Theological, and Pastoral Perspective. So we're delighted to welcome Jonathan Gibson to talk to us about limited atonement. Thanks, Jonathan. It's good to be on the program with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And I wondered if I could just start with a question about definitions. Could you concisely define what people mean when they use the phrase limited atonement? Uh, Sure. Uh, J.C. Ryle once said that the absence of accurate definitions is the very life of religious controversy, and that is no less the case when it comes to this whole topic of limited atonement. Uh, The phrase itself, I think, is unfortunate for two reasons. First, it's innately negative here's an atonement and now someone wants to limit it and secondly it's misleading the the adjective limited in front of that noun atonement is misleading it's misleading because as john murray said that unless we affirm universal salvation everyone limits the atonement so all sides in the debate arminian amiraldian hypothetical universalist calvinist everyone limits the atonement we either limit its efficacy or we limit its intention or extent. So in the book, rather than using the phrase limited atonement, which I think is, as I say, negative or misleading, we prefer the phrase definite atonement, uh, where that adjective definite does double duty, if you like. The atonement is definite in its intent. Christ died for a particular group of people, the church, and it's definite in its nature. The atonement really does atone. Now, in the book, the definition that we use for definite atonement is that in the death of Jesus Christ, the triune God intended to achieve the redemption of every person given to the Father by the Son in eternity past, and to apply the accomplishments of his sacrifice to each of them by the Spirit. In a nutshell, what we're really trying to argue for in the book is the death of Christ was intended to win the salvation of God's people alone. And not only was it intended to do that, but that it actually achieved it as well. So I wonder if you could then, you mentioned a number of other alternative views, and and I wonder if you could sort of contrast what you just described of, of definite atonement with maybe some other popular evangelical views. Well, the, the, the sort of classic view is that Christ died for everyone, the, the most popular view, and that he provides an atonement for everyone, but that it's only available to those who believe. So the view is that the nature of the atonement is such that Christ actually uh, propitiates the Father's wrath, or he potentially propitiates the Father's wrath for everyone, but it really comes down to whether or not someone believes in it. 
And the problem we have with that in the book that we uh, expose is that what it does is it makes the atonement, the efficacy of Christ's death, dependent on human faith. Uh, and that's one of the big problems that we have with it. The other problem is we think it introduces dissonance or, excuse the pun, cross-purposes into the Trinity, where you have the Father chooses some before the foundation of the world, the Son comes to die for everyone, and the Spirit only draws the elect. Uh, so what you have there is the Trinity, the persons within the Trinity, working uh, at cross-purposes with each other. Now, now it seems there are some texts in the New Testament that talk about God's love for the whole world. And so how do those texts, I mean, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, how do those texts fit with the teaching of definite atonement? Uh, well, what we try to show in the book is that texts like that are complementary to the doctrine of definite atonement rather than contradictory to it. Um, but let me say, first of all, that one of the things that we do in the book is we, we actually don't just critique the Arminian, Amaraldian, hypothetical universalist uh, position, but we also critique some Calvinists in their handling of these texts. For example, A.W. Pink said, uh, speaking on John 3.16, that it meant that God so loved the elect, and he said that God's love for the world uh, is really God's love for the elect, and that we should not take the pearls of God's love and throw them to the swine of the reprobate. Now, for an Englishman, <laughs> that was very imbalanced. Um, and what we try to do in the book is show that God's love in the Bible is manifested or expressed in a myriad of different ways. Uh, you have God's intra-Trinitarian love, his electing love, uh, his salvific stance towards a fallen world, his general love for all people provides food for all flesh, the sun rises and falls on the uh, good and the wicked. And then there's also his conditional love. Uh, in Titus, Paul writes, keep yourselves in the love of God. And so what we try to do in the book is not elevate one text of God's love that may refer to the world or to the church and elevate it to such a position that you cause reduction on other texts. Now, with that sort of general qualification before you approach the love of God texts, the other thing is that we find that as we did our work on each of the texts, the words all, many, and world were often constrained by their contexts, either theological, ecclesiological, literary. Uh, by various contexts, those words, those universalistic terms, were constrained in some way uh, such that they couldn't mean every single person who has ever lived. Uh, for example, John 3.16, as you mentioned, Jonathan, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In John's gospel, world is not so much describing bigness as it is describing badness. It's not that the world is so big and therefore God's love is so amazing. It's that, God's, it's that the world is so bad and therefore God's love is even more amazing that he would send his own son uh, and give people the opportunity of trusting in him. So, what I'm really saying there is that it's, it's all down to the context of how love, the love of God, is expressed in the Bible, and also the context of each particular text. So that leads into the next set of texts that, that um, are often 
raised in this discussion, texts that don't just talk about God's love for the world, but that say things like, you know, 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Would you see some of those texts similarly that that the whole world is is sort of constrained by the context there of 1 John? Uh, Yes. So, for example, um, I think John's confronting the Gnostic heresy of people who had an inner line with God. I think most commentators on John's gospel, uh, on um, the letters of John, would agree with that. And so when he says that Christ is our propitiation, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world, he's speaking in the context of of a Jewish community whereby there was this exclusivist heresy at play. And what he's trying to say is it's not just for our sins in this community that Christ died, but he he died for the whole world. Now, the question then becomes, well, what does that mean? Does that mean every single person that ever lived? And I just think when you take in the context of the whole Bible, it's hard to see that Christ propitiated the Father's wrath for people like Judas, for people like Pharaoh, Uh, for people uh, like um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, it's hard to see how God's uh, uh, Christ's propitiation would actually benefit those people in any way. So I think the context of 1 John as a letter and the context of the whole Bible uh, and God's love expressed in the whole Bible to different people uh, constrains us from actually viewing the word world there as... Uh, meaning every single person. The other thing to keep in mind is the word propitiation. When that word is used in the New Testament, either by John or uh, by Paul, uh, that word and other words like it, like ransom in 1 Timothy 2.6, they never speak of atonement in the sense of potential or potentiality. Um, It's always referring to Christ's actual atonement. It's not speaking in a hypothetical sense but rather in an actual sense. So we then need to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean for Christ to be the propitiation, the actual sacrifice of atonement uh, for the whole world? And if you accept that it is an actual atonement, well, then actually you need to accept that it would, it would save the whole world, that is, every single person. So you've got to sort of follow the logic and the trajectory of holding to the definite nature of the atonement. That, that, that's helpful, and that obviously would apply to a number of passages beyond 1 John 2.2. But, but I want to move in a, in a different direction. Sometimes it's, it's been charged that definite atonement and the teaching and preaching of definite atonement removes any incentive to evangelism or removes any opportunity to give a free offer of the gospel. I wonder if you could respond to that. Yeah, um, I think... In responding to it, I think the key thing is following the example of our Lord. So in Matthew eleven twenty seven to 28, he affirms the particularity of grace in who the Son chooses to reveal the Father to. And then in the very next verse, he invites all people, everyone, to come to him and find rest. So there we have the particularity of grace and the universal offer side by side in one passage. And if Jesus didn't have a problem with holding to the particularity of grace in election, who he chooses to reveal the Father to, and at the same time holding out a universal indefinite offer to everyone, 
then I don't think we should have a problem in holding to the particularity of grace, either in election and holding out a universal offer to everyone, or the particularity of grace in the intent and nature of the atonement and holding out a offer, a universal offer to everyone. The second thing I would say is that the apostles, when you follow their preaching through the book of Acts, they never use the phrase, Christ died for you. That word is never used in any of the sermons in the book of Acts. And yet the apostles turned the world upside down, as did many Calvinist evangelists, David Brainard, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon. All of these people had very fruitful ministries and all of them believed in definite atonement. So as J.I. Packer puts it well, he says the gospel is not believe that Christ died for everybody's sins and therefore for yours any more than it is believe that Christ died only for certain people's sins and so perhaps not for yours. Rather, the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sins and now offers you himself as your saviour. That's the message that we proclaim. And so who Christ died for is none of my business. Who God has elected is none of my business. Even who will choose to follow God in the Arminian sense is none of my business. I have to proclaim the gospel to everyone indefinitely because it's not up for me. It's not for me to know whom those God, that God has chosen. So I think to sum up, I think the whole... Um, idea that if you hold to election, as in predestination and foreknowledge of God, or you hold to a definite atonement, therefore you cannot evangelize. I think that's a caricature. It's one of the things in our book that we try to critique. And uh, John Piper's chapter, which is the last chapter in the book on preaching and definite atonement, gives a really helpful critique on that caricature. Now, why... When you, when you started thinking about putting this book together, why did you feel like definite atonement was something worth defending and asserting? Or, or maybe moving away from the book, it, in, in churches, why is this something worth being clear on? Apart, apart from the fact that you do see it in the scriptures, but why is it a, a, an important doctrine? Well, definite atonement does not exhaust the meaning of the cross, but it does enrich the meaning of the cross. And what I mean by that is that the Bible itself is not a systematic theology. You can't turn up Romans chapter 8 and find Paul's exposition of the intent and nature of the atonement. It's a story. God has given us a story, and it's a story that has drama at its heart, and dare I say it, romance. So, um, hence the title of our book, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, that's a line from Samuel Stone's hymn, The Church's One Foundation. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Um, the beauty of the gospel, said Martin Luther, is found in the personal pronouns. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that whole idea of a husband coming to win a bride for himself it adds beauty and drama to the gospel story. It's not just a proposition of atonement for sinners. It's actually a drama unfolding in redemptive history. So Jesus didn't die as a private individual, a mere bare substitute for people. He died as a public man, 
as a covenant head, as a representative. And when you grasp that, then the whole um, beauty of the atonement or the atonement takes on a whole new beauty that you see that here is a king who dies for his people. Here's a husband who sacrifices himself for his bride. Here's a shepherd who dies for his sheep, a master for his friends, the firstborn for his brothers and sisters. Here is the last Adam who, like the first Adam, fell into a deep sleep and from his riven side came his bride. So this whole idea of definite atonement, it enriches our meaning, our understanding of the cross and the drama of redemption. As Dorothy Sayers put it so well, uh, the dogma is the drama and the dogma of Christ's definite atonement is part of the drama of redemptive history. So I think that is beneficial for all Christians, for churches in general, but I think it's also beneficial, the doctrine is, for pastors because it enriches our preaching. We don't just preach a bare substitutionary instead of atonement. Rather, we preach the beauty of a husband who comes to win a bride for himself. And not only that, we can do so with the full confidence that God is actually going to draw people to himself and apply that effective atonement to sinners. And finally, I think it adds great assurance to Christians and also to pastors that the God who is for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working together in harmony and in unison to bring about our redemption, that same God is not about to leave us or forsake us. Uh, it also means as pastors we can preach on the Lord's Day, we can go about our ministry during the week evangelizing, and then we can go home and sleep well because we know that God will save his elect. And not only will he save them, but he will keep them safe. He will take each one of his sheep safely home because he's the good shepherd because he had a particular love for that group of people. So I think there are benefits for Christians, for churches as a whole, and also for pastors. Last question. You've helped put together this this wonderful book. It is about 700 pages long. I'm wondering, for some of our listeners, if you could recommend something slightly shorter or perhaps a particular chapter or two in your volume that would be a good place to start if they wanted to learn more about this important doctrine. Outside of the book, I would recommend J.I. Packer's introduction to John Owen's The Death of Death and The Death of Christ. It's a classic essay. Uh, you can find it in the front of that book, or I think it's also present in a book that he and um, Mark Dever produced a number of years ago, uh, In My Place Condemned He Stood. So the essay's in there as well. That That is a really great essay. It deals with definite atonement, but it deals with it in its proper context of looking at the other five points and uh, the, the sort of wider uh, doctrine of soteriology. And Packer really has one point in that essay, and that is that God saves sinners. That's Calvinism at its best. That's the gospel in its most pristine form. God saves sinners. Uh, that would be the, the essay I would turn to outside of the book. Another essay is by John Murray, which is uh, The Atonement and the Free Offer of the Gospel. If people have a problem with holding to definite atonement because they think it'll quench their zeal for evangelism, 
then John Murray's essay, The Atonement and the Free Offer of the Gospel, in his collected writings, is superb. Within the book, if it's not uh, drawing attention to ourselves, we, I would recommend the introduction that my brother and I wrote, because in that we just lay out the, the, the whole terrain of this debate. And then the essay that I think would really give a great overview of the whole of the book and of the doctrine is Henri Blochet's essay. It's the last chapter in the theological section. Um, it's called Jesus Christ, the Man, um, a systematic theology of towards a systematic theology of definite atonement. And then for pastors and preachers, John Piper's essay is just you know worth the whole price of the book to read that and take on board what he's saying about definite atonement and the glory of God. Well, thanks for those recommendations. All very, very good ones. I can attest to, to all of them. Uh, and thanks for your work on this book and for, for your time today. Not a problem, Jonathan. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. It was our pleasure. <laughs>